You're listening to The Rewatchables on the Ringer Podcast Network. My name is Bill Simmons. I'm here with Chris Ryan. Chris, don't let her go, man. Say no most fire coming up. I can't remember who met who first or who fell in love with who first. All I can remember is the seven of us always together. It's not just infatuation, Kevin. She's not just a girl. She's the only evidence of God that I can find on this entire planet. Where did you meet Wendy again? Prison. Do you ever feel like you're not accomplishing anything at all? I think I'm in touch with that emotion. The heat this summer is at St. Elmo's Fire. You're not going to believe how to hand it's going to be. All right, it's been 35 years since we left Georgetown with seven precocious kids who somehow had a more interesting life at age 22 than any of us had ever had. This is the movie that launched the whole Brat Pack phenomenon. This is a movie that is 35 years old, but is still strangely watchable. This is a movie that has not aged well in some ways, but has aged fantastically in other ways. Most important to me, Chris Ryan. I just like a group of friends after college all hanging out, trying to maintain those relationships. Why doesn't Hollywood make this type of movie more? It's too low concept. I, I was just talking with our producer, Craig, about this. And I just think that like they all have to be on a college football team or something. Like There needs to be some extra level of drama. And that's the thing that hits you as soon as you start rewatching this movie is like you're going through it and you're like, wait, something's going to happen, right? Like Something has to happen. There has to be some concept. And it's really just a portrait of these people's lives. It is an incredibly flawed portrait. Like we've done flawed rewatchables before. And I think that the premise of those has often been, were it not for these one or two things, this might have been like a perfect movie. I don't think that's necessarily the case for, for St. Almost Fire, but I've seen this movie so many times. I have seen this movie such a ridiculous amount of times from when I was a kid. And I thought like, oh, is this what older kids are like? Is this what it means like when you get out of college to when I was like in college and it would just be on on cable or on a VHS to like even now where like I get roped in as soon as I hear that sweet, sweet sax. Yeah. Well, we've seen, we did Reality Bites on this podcast. We're going to do Kicking and Screaming at some point. Uh, the Big Chill, I was mm -hmm. actually weirdly watching last night. And then looking up and, and just couldn't believe William Hurt didn't get nominated for an Oscar. I, I still don't understand that, especially if you look at the 1983 Oscars. There's only been a couple of these movies. And then there's been some bad ones. Like Indian Summer, I think, is a good example of, yeah. oh, yeah, summer camp 10 years later. And they're really trying to do St. Elmo's Fire, Big Chill. And they just can't pull it off. In the last 10 years, there's been a bunch of attempts at this. Because I think people like us have been sitting around going, why aren't there more of these movies? I think there's a higher degree of difficulty to pulling them off than maybe we give it credit for. In this case, much like Big Chill, seven, seven friends. Yeah. Plus you have, in Big Chill, kind of the eighth wild card was the Meg Tilly character who was married to Alex who committed suicide. In this movie, I guess the wild card is, is basically Rob Lowe's wife. Rob Lowe, 
I guess got married during college. Rob Lowe's character, Billy Hicks, but yeah. uh, it's like, so it's like seven and a half. Seven is usually the right number. We can meet everybody, get involved. They're all going to be different in some ways. And yet they just can't pull this off. They've tried. It, it's really hard. Well, one thing that people often steal from the big chill is like forcing these people to reunite, forcing these people to be in a house together. And I think one of the things that is at once working for and against St. Elmo's Fire is the fact that they are have they're living their lives separate from one another. I mean, they're still friends, but they're essentially we're catching them at the moment where they're about to split all, all split apart. It would be interesting if they had done like they had all moved into a house together after college. And they were forced to always see one another. But I think one of the reasons why this movie actually almost feels more like a compressed season of television is because all of the A, B, C, D plots are happening independent to each other almost. Like we never meet Jules's stepmom, but we hear all about her. The whole Kerbo and Dale thing is happening like over there. And when Kevin hears about it, he's like, who the fuck is Dale Bieberman? Like most people, like there's not a lot of overlapping of plots until the very end, but something like Big Chill, Something like kicking and screaming, it's a lot more like these people are kind of forced to interact and their lives are forced to live on top of each other. It hits two themes that I think have worked over and over again in, in some of the movies we've just mentioned. The, I am out of college, what do I do now? I thought that I thought my life was going to come together a lot faster and a lot more successfully than it did. Man, this has been a rude awakening. That always works. The concept of, I mattered more when I was in college. And I had it going and now I'm just out here in the real world and I'm just like anybody else and I, I don't matter anymore. I think that one has, uh, has been really successful. And then the third piece of it is I probably aren't going to be as close as to these, these people five years from now yeah. as I am right now. And I'm kind of realizing that, that we're all having this moment together and it's probably not going to last. And I think when he leaves at the end and he goes on the bus, it's it's very apparent. Like the group's never going to be the same. They know it. They go outside to the St. Elmo's fire bar. There's already a next generation of people at their table. And they kind of know like, oh yeah, our friendship group has immortality. By the way, that's a great thing for a movie because sure. it's happened to all of us. I know yeah. what happened with me. You have these people that you're incredibly close to and you think you're going to be friends you know, in a really tight way for the next 40 years. And then everybody kind of moves in different directions. And that's what happened. Yeah. And it's a nice snapshot of also a time in our history when I think people were really dependent and reliant on people, but didn't have as much contact with them. So you really weren't like just on a group chat with people texting all day, like, hey, did you see the Mets one? And you know, hey, screw you. Like you didn't pay me back for that beer last night. It's like they they make plans. Like and they're and they're they're calling each other when they're, you know, when they need one another. Jules is like making those phone calls. Uh, it's and then, but I think the the flip side of that is that when that period comes to an end, the end is pretty severe because there isn't like, hey, we can all keep in touch in these various ways. It's like, no, he's a Republican now. This guy is not going to be able to be with the love of his life. Kerbo has switched careers three or four times in the last six months. <laughs> so, Kerbo, <laughs> pick pick a job, brother. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think it, it all kind of becomes like almost a little time capsule piece that way. Yeah, so there's two paths. One is the here they are right after college trying to navigate this real world. That's a reality bites did that kicking and screaming did that too. Or there's the, we have to get back together yeah. because of some event. It's either a 10-year reunion or a 15-year reunion. It's somebody died. 
And now everybody is thrown together again. And in some ways, the dynamic of the group is completely the same. All the relationships are completely the same. And yet in other ways, the people are a lot different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that the big show is the best one of these. And I, I think for the last nearly four decades, people have been chasing the big show, trying to recreate how special that movie is. It's yeah. a movie we're definitely going to do in the rewatchables at some point. And the key scene is near the end when they're having the whole heart to heart and William Hurt really kind of goes in on the crowd. Like, yeah, you, you're talking about how much you miss Alex. Just stay in touch with him. Yeah. <laughs> like, like what were you doing for him? And he's like, we, we have these relationships. We all knew each other very intensely for this very short period of time. And now we don't know each other at all. And, and Tom Berenger's fighting back. That's bullshit. We're, you guys are my friends for life. And they're kind of both right. Yeah. But that dynamic, I think people have been trying to figure out for the last 40 years to mix results. Santa almost fire does a pretty good job of it. Well, I think that the same way that you get out of school and you start thinking about what you want to do for a career and like the kind of person you want to be, that you let that define you. But I think you're also defined by like what kind of friend you are. And I know that like I had a very tight group of friends in college. We all lived in like a house together in Boston and we were really immersed in like the music scene there. And then um, like you get out of that, but like when you start thinking about like, okay, so like who leaves first basically? <laughs> like, right. like there's always like that first person who was like, did you think that this was going to go on forever? And we were just going to like live in this house and go out four nights a week and, and, and then kind of like scrabble together retail and bartending jobs and like kind of minor careers and in, in doing nothing and just hang out forever and go to the movies and then go to get dinner and then go to bars all night. Like that, that, that ends and it can end really abruptly. Yeah. So that's one theme. That's one reason I think this movie is endured because in the span of two hours, they really captured that group and all these dynamics. Granted it's flawed as hell. The movie goes wrong in a bunch of different ways, as we're going to discuss, but it's really endearing. There's, and even I think if somebody was in their 20s and they watched it, I think they would still identify with a lot of it. The second reason this movie has endured is the moment in Hollywood that it yeah. captures yeah. with the Brat Pack, which um, we could tell the whole story about that in a second. But you're talking about all these people who were all already in movies with each other, right? You have three of the Breakfast Club people. That movie comes out right before this movie. You have Andrew McCarthy and Rob Lowe. They were together in class. You have Demi Moore and Rob Lowe. They're about to be in About Last Night together. Mm -hmm. there, there's this cross-section, um, and there's this generation. And there's some people that weren't in this movie that we're going to talk about in Casting What Ifs. And you got Cruz and C. Thomas Howell and Timothy Hunt and people like that. When I did the Rob Lowe podcast and we talked about Sin Almost Fire, we're going to put that at the tail end of this podcast. Um, they all kind of knew each other. Mm-hmm. There was a real moment. They're all partying. This is the cocaine era. This is people not realizing yet that party's not bad. The movie taps into that. And there's a real generation here. And I think of all the movies from this generation, uh, this movie and Breakfast Club are the two that has the most kind of people that you would associate with this generation. I think that's why it's endured. They were beloved like teenage actors or young actors who a lot of people associate with parts of their childhood. And then it was like this first step into young adulthood. And they were, I, I think we can talk about like how the ch how perceptions change, but what's stunning is you've got a movie, it's 35 years old. It's still a movie that most people associate with each of these actors. I think, you know, people still think of Rob Lowe and they mostly think 
Billy and a couple of other things. They think of Ali Sheedy. They think of Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire and a lot of other things. You know, they were essentially like rejected after this. Like the entire thing deflates after this. They get to this incredible peak so young and so early in their careers and essentially have their entire thing minted. Like this is it. This is the new crop of Hollywood stars for the next 20 years. And something happens in there, whether it's partying or or ego or maybe just like they they weren't like stepping up into the material that they wanted and it all kind of disappears. Rob Lowe and Demi Moore, I think, endured and had success after this short-term success and then for Demi Moore, long-term success. You're right. Everybody else in this movie, this was kind of the peak. And we should talk about that Brat Pack piece because it's really important. It was a New York Magazine piece by a guy named David Blum. He was writing a piece on Estevez and went out with him. And Estevez thought it was going to be about how he's trying to be this young writer, director, son of Hollywood royalty. He was directing. That was then. This is now. And invites, basically the guy befriends him. He invites the guy out. Guy's partying with Estevez and he's just kind of writing down what he sees and, and everybody gets too comfortable around this guy. And that could go one of two ways. Either you're, you're bringing the guy into the fold and he actually likes you. He doesn't want to burn you. Or in this guy's case, he's approaching it a a lot like, you know, the blog mentality of the last 15 years where he's like, I'm going to burn these guys. And he takes them down with this New York magazine piece. The cover says the Brat Pack or the new Brat Pack or whatever, or Brat Pack, whatever it was. And all these guys saw and they knew that was it, that people were going to turn on them. The article's not flattering. It's Estevez basically trying to find girls getting mad. He can't get it in a premiere. People are coming and going. Um, but in a weird way, it did capture probably what their lives were like. It just ca- tried to capture it in a negative way. And I think all these guys talked about it, it was a really damaging profile for them. And and they knew it at the time and it, and it bore out. Yeah. I think, you know, you could go back with hindsight and say like, what was unfair? I mean, I think that the, the celebrity hit piece or the kind of like the more gotcha elements of celebrity profile journalism way goes back before like the last 15 years of blog stuff. But I think that I was reading this article that Carl Curlander, who wrote St. Almost Fire, wrote for Deadline for the 35th anniversary. It was just his reflections on it. And his account of that piece is like, it's kind of what you're saying. It's like, this was pretty unfair. They invited him out. He was like, he was from out of town and Emilio was trying to like kind of be nice and show him a good time. But, he, you know, he's like, but at the time, like, I think he says like Emilio and Demi Moore are dating and Demi Moore is sober because she had gone into rehab before St. Elmo's fire started. And he's basically like, it was a relatively, it, it, the, the takeaway is like, it was an accurate enough piece, but it was not very accurate about that exact moment that the piece was written in. And I think that that's probably, it, it all comes out in the wash to be like, at the end of the day, like they probably would have been able to overcome whatever attitude people had about them if the work was there and if the work had been better, you know? And I, I do not know what happened to Judd Nelson. Like, you know, like, I don't know what happened to some of these these people in the, in the, in, in their future endeavors, but you know, it seems like the Brat Pack article really deflated them in the public eye, but probably they probably would have kept working more consistently. Yeah, the work, the work wasn't helping. Yeah. And in some, in some cases, like, you know, like Ali Sheedy, she had a good run there from 1980 through 85, right? She's in war games. She's in uh, Bad Boys. 
She's in Breakfast Club. She's in this movie. She's a couple more. Maybe maybe she should have had a six year run, and that was it. I think I think if you were drafting at the time, if you just saw this movie come out of the movie theater, and you're like, who's going to have the biggest career come out of this movie? You would have said Rob Lowe and Debbie Moore. Yeah, I mean, and I think that the, the, the movie industry chews people up and spits them out. It's rare that we get to see it that we see it in public like this. It's rare. I mean, usually it's like a behind the scenes thing where it's just like, oh, this person hasn't been in movies for a while or like, you know, I wonder whatever happened to like that person who was like the the romantic, the third, the third role in this movie. And this is like pretty obviously like it all happens. And Ali Sheedy has talked about her experiences on St. Almost Fire. And it just sounds like they, this was just kind of like the machine broke, you know? You think that was the most famous Hollywood article of the 80s? Of the 80s? It's the biggest one that I can think of. Yeah. I can't remember. Is there like a, a really good Ishtar tell-all that I, you know, like I'm trying to think of, like, like I'm trying to think of other ones, but it, to me that like, I still, I, 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 I knew that that article existed when I was very young and it, it stuck around. And it's weird because it was pre-internet. So if you didn't get New York Magazine, like, would you have even known about it? Like, I didn't know about it. No, but it became, it became like basically a common parlance to refer to them as the Brat Pack. So it just, it actually took on a life of its own. And I knew that, but that, I didn't know how it happened, I guess is my point. Sure, yeah. And I think even like the idea then of, I, I think the the new Hollywood squad of the 70s and like kind of like the filmmakers that were coming out and also like the all the New York actors that were coming out like Pacino and De Niro and Hackman and all these guys in Duval, they had like a kind of like, this is a, this is a crew of guys uh, that people perceived that. But I don't think it had ever been as crystallized as the Brat Pack was these kids are next. Everybody in America who's under 25 is obsessed with them. And pretty soon they're just going to be the biggest movie stars in the world. And it actually led to probably something that's still happening now, which is basically going around and trying to group people together through loose association and being like, that's the next generation. I mean, I feel like that happened in the seventies though. And I think that was part of the backlash with these guys is in the seventies. It was the Pacino De Niro Harvey Keitel, Robert Duvall, like all those guys. And that was a real generation that did right. great. But those guys just didn't all pose for a, a cover of a magazine with the headline, you talking to me. And it's all those guys being like, life with Marty, you know, like. <laughs> right. All right. Two other reasons I think this movie hit big and also endured. Here's the third reason. Music. Yeah. It's one of the five greatest theme songs of any movie ever. And I remember I couldn't find it on YouTube when the NBA, they used it for some Lakers Celtics. Did they really? In the mid eighties. And it was like, the Boston Celtics believe that blah, blah, blah. But Larry (laughs) Bird had other ideas. It's just, it's just great. And, I think the opening credits, which we'll get to in most rewatchable scenes, where it's like this wide shot of what we think is Georgetown. It's actually the University of Maryland. And this music and these seven people with their arms around each other walking toward the camera. And it's one of those things where you're like, I get it. I know what this movie is going to be about. The music's great. It's endured in a really awesome way. And I think the fourth reason is just cable. Mm -hmm. This movie was on a lot. This podcast is called The Rewatchables, and this is a rewatchable because this was on all the time. It's a movie you could jump in and out of. You can kind of see your friends for a half hour. You'd be like, oh, man, Billy Hicks, missed that guy. Yeah, I'm going to watch. Go make, a, go make a sandwich every time Kerbo is on. <laughs> oh, yeah, Kerbo, I'm going to pee when he's on, and it just kind of keeps going and going. Bill, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you feel like 
because like I remember what I remember of the 80s and 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 like being in middle school or like about 13, 15, whatever, up up until like when I was around 15. I remember very much like pop culture ushering me out of childhood, like being like, you wanna, it's cool to be older. It's cool to be your friend's older brother. It's cool to be like 19. It's cool to be an adult. Like you can't wait for that to happen. Like I was in, I was in a big rush because I felt like I wanted to like explore the world around me as I got older. Whereas like, I think that there was definitely a moment in the late 90s and has continued since then where there also was this explosion of pop culture made explicitly for like people your kid's age and telling them like, you know, stay the age you are. Like, here's all this stuff to be like immersed in now. Don't worry about what older people like. That doesn't matter. And I think that this movie actually is like the thing that I'm talking about where they're like, don't you want to grow up and be partying at St. Elmo's Fire and have like these adult relationships? And it almost seemed like something that I aspire to, whereas now I wonder whether or not people are in any big rush to grow up. Well, you think about the mid eighties specifically. I mean, yeah, I was, I'm older than you, but growing up in that where we don't have the internet yet, how are we going to find out what it's like to be an adult? Unless it's somebody in our own life, a book, a movie or a TV show. And that's it. So I think of a movie like this or even about last night or about last night really constructs a relationship. Yeah. Beginning, middle dip, comeback. And it's like that. I didn't, know a lot of relationships when I was a 16 year old, only child, you know, living on the East coast. And it was like, Oh, so maybe, and then you watch another movie and it's like, Oh, that's interesting too. And you take these little pieces from it. And for me saying almost fire was like, I'm going to go to college someday. I wonder if, I wonder if that I'll have a group like that. Yeah. And we'll stay together. Would we live there after? And you start thinking about all these things. I don't think the, I think starting in the late nineties, I don't think people watch movies that way anymore. I think they have a much bigger awareness of everything sure. that's going on. You know, I just remember being in school and whoever like the coolest kid in my class was, was still like, to me only like a quarter as cool as like my friend's older brother or older sister who had like an echo in the Bunnyman t-shirt and like wore an overcoat and seemed like just impossibly like living in another universe for me when I was that young. And I, I just wonder whether that's changed over the years because like you're saying, like people have so much more ability to connect with each other and to see all this other stuff. Whereas like then it was really just these examples, like these fleeting examples of like, oh, is that what it's like to be 17 when you can drive? Holy shit. Like I can't wait to get to that point. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I did spend most of my time wishing I was older. Yeah, yeah. I don't think my daughter does that at all. I think my daughter loves being 15. And is really like enjoying the ride and all the checkpoints she's going to hit. I was different. I was like, I can't wait till I can drive. I can't wait till I can go to college. I can't wait until I can go to a Celtics game. Right. You right. were the date, like all these things. So I was thinking that uh, the other reason we're doing this podcast is because Joel Schumacher just died. Yeah. And uh, Sean and Amanda talked about him a little bit on the big picture last week. He was always gravitating toward whatever the most entertaining over the top version of an idea was. And I think this is a great example. Sent almost fire, seven kids coming out of college. Well, their apartments are ridiculous. And he's the first one to admit it. Like, he's like, I didn't want these people slumming it in these shitty apartments and, you know, eating ramen. Yeah. He wanted like the glamorous version of people out of college. You look at Judd Nelson's apartment 
and you look at Demi Moore's apartment, it's like literally nobody 22 years old would have an apartment like that unless your dad was a billionaire or something. But that Joel Schumacher wanted, he wanted the glamorous, the glamorous version of the college experience. And this is a very Joel Schumacher movie. What are your thoughts on him? He comes from a background, I think, as, as a lot of people did in the 80s and early 90s, is like a, back, a background in fashion and a background in, um, you know, basically artifice, you know? And the, the idea of basically creating not like a, a realistic or accurate representation of something, but like a fantastical version of it, the idealized version of it, the one that you were, if you're sitting in the movie theater, you don't want to see your smelly apartment with Kerbo, you want to see the perfect version of that apartment. And there's still part of me that when I see Kevin and Kerbo's apartment, I'm like, it seems like a pretty cool place to live. Like, it's ridiculous. But like, you know, when you see it and Kevin's like dancing to Aretha Franklin and got bongos, I'm just like, this guy is such a corn dog. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, I kind of like, like, I kind of know that when I was 20 and living with my friends, we had the same shit on the walls. We had the same like, what is this bottle? Is this whiskey or red wine? Can anyone tell anymore? Like that kind of like vibe. And he was really good at creating that kind of heightened reality. And he was also like, I mean, oversaw some absolutely astonishing disasters, but also made like a bunch of really controversial, provocative, and ultimately very rewatchable movies. Like I think I was like, when you first brought this up, I was trying to, I was advocating for flatliners. Because I was like, like he has a bunch of these. Yeah, and I'm not even sure Flatliner is a good movie. Is oh. Flatliner a good movie? It, it, but to me, it's like th- that's kind of besides the point. Flatliners is about a, is a movie where Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts keep killing each other to like experience the afterlife. <laughs> like I'm, I'm in. So the first movie he directed was Incredible Shrinking Woman, bomb. Then he does DC Cab, which had a lot of people in it. Yeah. yeah was not good. I wanted to like it. I, I really, really want, I think Mr. T was in it. It, it. it had all the makings. It just didn't get there. And then he rips off St. Almost Fire, The Lost Boys. I don't know what Cousins was. Flatliners, Dying Young. And then he makes Falling Down, which is definitely one of the weirdest movies of the last 30 years. And it's a movie like if you showed young people, I don't think they know what was going on. And then after that, he's a huge commercial director. Director. Does Batman Forever the worst Batman that's ever Mm -hmm. been made? If we ever did the unwatchables, Batman Forever would be on it. But then bounces back with a time to kill. Oh, I'm sorry. He did a time to kill before Batman and Robin. Wait, which one was the bad one? Batman Forever or Batman and Robin? I don't think either of them are particularly well liked, but Batman and Robin is thought of as like the worst all time. That's that's Clooney, right? Yeah. With Chris O'Donnell? Yeah. Yeah. A time to kill, which I really like. Then he did my favorite eight millimeter. <laughs> for the listeners, I've been trying to get Chris to do eight millimeter for two years. Even he won't do it with me. I have nobody to do it with. I might have to get my best friend uh, Jeff Gallo to do it with me. Are you going to do? What if you, if you did solo eight millimeter? I think we would have to close the feed. <laughs> that would be the. That's the farewell podcast. And then he did flawless, and then it just gets weird after that. Although I know you like phone booth. Yeah, phone booth's good. Come on, that's that's like peak out of control feral right there. Just a lot of. Uh, a lot of hit and misses, but so he explained this. There's a really good book about uh, the eighties and movies called you couldn't ignore me if you tried by Suzanne Agora. So I got some research from that. So it's actually like full ass internet research. Schumacher told her 
we inadvertently made it. This is about St. Elmo's Fire. We inadvertently made a film about how everybody has a group of people. It's your team, your gang. No matter what it is in life, you all have this pledge that you're going to stay together and nothing is ever going to split you up. But it doesn't work out that way. Ultimately, that's what this movie turned out to be, that you can't stay friends forever. And I think that's why I like it so much, uh, among all the other reasons we're going to talk to. He, he also pointed out in the book that there hadn't been anything much written about graduated from college since The Graduate. Um, when he was making DC Cab, which was in Washington, and he's, he was looking at Georgetown and mm -hmm. how there were all these young people. And he said, it was the period of time when you're coming out of college, you had to be already recruited by some company, have a 25-year plan. You're wearing very expensive clothes. You were sort of pretending to be an adult. Yeah. And I think that's a good theme too, the whole concept of, I'm pretending to be an adult, but I'm not an adult yet, as we found out with Kerbo. Yeah. I also, I mean, it's kind of funny that I think the the costumes in this movie say a lot about that because like they're all kind of like trying on these new these new personalities with their clothes and like Leslie and Alec are like very uptight professionals Kevin's still dressing like a college senior Billy's still dressing like a ninth grader like they all kind of are representing themselves in their clothes that's a good point so he wrote it uh Kurlander was his assistant mm -hmm. and had this idea for a movie and then they ended up writing it together and it became what it became the film was announced in uh, 1984, producer Ned Tannen. It was right after the big chill. So he he nicknamed it the little chills, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> little big chill, <laughs> big chill uh, momentum. The movie did well. I was uh -huh. surprised. It made almost $38 million out of $10 million budget, even though the uh, the critics were not kind. They were David, not. David Denby. He called Shoemaker, quote, brutally untalented. That's tough. Joel Shoemaker, Joel Shoemaker is like an example of how, I don't know if there's really such a thing as director jail. Because this guy has like overseen some of like the most critically reviled and biggest disasters and just made movies like over and like just kept doing it. Right. Well, um, Siskel and Ebert, there wasn't a review online about it, but he did give it a thumbs down. You won't be surprised. So that was Raj's, Raj's take on that. And then uh, David Denby also said, San Almas Fire is so depressing, important of Hollywood's teen psychophancy, because it's not only devotes itself to stupid kids, it accepts their view of the world without any real criticism. Dave. Dave did not like this movie. Settle down, Dave. By, by 35 years later, take a settle down, Dave. Well, it uh, it lives on. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we're going to go to the categories. From The Ringer, I'm Tyler R. Times. When I spoke to NFL star Cam Newton in January, his mindset was clear. I want my whole career to be in Charlotte. Cam won't be getting that wish. He was released by the Carolina Panthers in March. Cam is a complex figure, and my interest in him goes far beyond his exuberant smile and transcendent style of play. Cam broke the glass ceiling in American athletics, ascending to a place in the sport that few black quarterbacks have ever reached, making his fall that much more dramatic. Over the past year, I've traveled the country speaking to coaches and teammates, friends and family, reporters, and even briefly to the man himself, trying to unravel the enigma that is Cam Newton. I uncovered contradictions at every turn, 
How can the hardest worker on the team be depicted as a bad leader? And how can a franchise icon with the NFL MVP and Super Bowl appearance on his resume be so abruptly cast aside? The Ringer NFL Show presents The Cam Chronicles. The series premieres Monday, July 13th. All right, most rewatchable scene, St. Elmo's Fire. I really like the opening credits. Just wanted to put that on there because we get to hear the music whole thing. First one, the first St. Elmo's Fire bar scene. Yes. When we get to see everyone in the bar, there's cheesy 80s music. We get to see everybody in their habitat. Uh, Judd Nelson dunks Rob Lowe's head in the water. The metaphysical precision collision. <laughs> Rob Lowe's really going for it. Yeah. Just he, he just straps it on. He says, fuck it. What was your uh, what was your bar? What was your right out of college bar? Because everybody's got the place in their early twenties. I, ne- I never had one. You never had a single place that you went to over and over again. Well, you were when did you start bartending? Like right after school? No, that was like four or five years later. I, there were so many bars in Boston. We had probably the Sevens was my favorite one in Beacon Hill. Mm-hmm. But I I, I never I, I was kind of moved around. I went to the Model a lot in Alston. And then I went, I went to the Middle East a lot in, in Cambridge, in Central Square. My favorite barber was Sam's in Portchester, which I've talked about many yeah. times because they had shuffleboard. But that was when uh, my friends Jim and Camp lived there. Uh, next rewatchable scene, the first Jeep scene. It's short, <laughs> but it includes the iconic exchange. I'll let you be Judd Nelson. What the hell is the three-year chairman of the Georgetown Young Democrats doing working for a Republican? Moving it up, Kerbo. <laughs> What the hell is a three-year president of Georgetown's Young Democrats doing working for a Republican now? Moving up, Kerbo. Oh. <laughs> oh. 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 Let's get trashed anyway. For a change. He could have thrown in the second moving up, but he decided not to. <laughs> uh, and then they do the oogaloo, boogaloo, boogaloo, whatever. Uh, next, so you know that that, that the Oogala Boogala was like something that they those guys the actors would see people doing in bars, right? Right. Yeah. It seems like from the research, five of them were really tight. Mm-hmm. Andrew McCarthy was an outcast. He was like, "I'm just trying to be an actor, man." And he was in from, and he was like living in New York too most of the time. Yeah. So he was kind of not in the group. And then Mayor Winningham, I think, had a kid. So it was the five of them that were really tight. Next rewatchable scene: Billy goes on the roof when he's at Mayor Winningham's house. The frat house, I'd crawl right out Alex's window on the roof, my horn. Come on down here! I knew it the minute he came in the door. Drugs! Just, I always, I'm always into somebody being on the roof trying to blast my. <laughs> Next scene, Billy's big sack scene, dude. This is one of the funniest fight. We're, we'll come back to it in a second, but because uh, that's going to be my vote. Kirby's party at Kim's house. I like big party scenes. Judd Nelson gets mad at McCarthy. Yeah, Kim needs LinkedIn. He's got to figure out that Kerbo, Kerbo and Billy are friends. Yeah, Kim, maybe move on. Uh, Jules and Billy in the car. Uh-huh. When he just gets over the top and really hurts her feelings and doesn't yeah. realize it. And then she does that. You break my heart. Then again, you break everyone's heart. Get back in the Jeep and assume the missionary position. You break my heart. 
Then again, you break everyone's heart. Devastating. And then uh, my last one is Leslie moves out of Alex's apartment. Yep. Dividing up the records. Yeah. No Springsteen is leaving this house. No Springsteen is leaving this house. You can have all the Carly Simons. You got me this for Valentine's Day. Remember when there were still Valentines around here? You ran out on this relationship. You take the consequences. I didn't run out on anything. You ran out. You fucked Kevin. You fucked many. Nameless, faceless many. You can have the Billy Joel, just not the stranger. Have the Carly Simons. You fucked Kevin. You fucked many. Nameless, faceless many. Tough one. <laughs> and then uh, and then she leaves and Jed Nelson goes, wasted love. God, I wish I could get it back. He's <laughs> at completely out of control of this movie. My vote is for... Uh, Billy's big sack scene. Uh, it's, there's no other question. I have a couple of others I would toss in there. Um, I really, I enjoy the, the Kevin Leslie hookup scene, the confession in the apartment and everything. I, 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 am I, I part of your props? Yeah. Am I part of your props? That's a good, good scene. I also, you know, like I, like I mentioned before, I like the, the first scene where like Kevin and Kurbo are hanging out at the apartment and talking about the meaning of life. And then Billy comes in. He's like, I can't handle the little misses tonight. Can I crash? Um, he's like 40. Yeah, he's right. He's 22. But there's really no competition. It is Billy Hicks and the new breed. Halloween night. Just, just going for gold. And maybe the longest sax solo this side of a Love Supreme. So a lot of things I love about this. Yeah. They, first of all, they're playing a song, which I'm guessing is called One Love because yeah, it's the so. only lyrics in the song. I think the song is called Billy Sax Solo. Like those guys, if you're in that band, you're just like, Jesus Christ. Are we just, are we just standing around for you, man? Like what is Two choruses. Yeah. What love? What love? And Billy's just like, just around midnight. <laughs> It's, it's basically Billy's like, "Hey man, I'm the chef. Let me cook." Yeah, it's my it's Billy Hicks and the play. So, can we talk a little bit about his musical career? Just just for now. I mean, I was going to kind of bring this up a little bit later, but I, I I think you know the unanswerable questions section of this podcast is essentially all tied up in what happens to these people. But when you watch this movie up into the point of um of the Halloween night party. I didn't get the, I mean, I know he gets in a car accident in the first scene with his sax and he seems to care about his sax, but like, is he a musician? Like, did you get the impression that Billy was trying to make a go of it with music? It, it kind of comes and goes. He's a good enough musician that he's in a band that where he's Billy Hicks and the new breed. Yeah. So he's obviously good. I don't have a feeling at Georgetown that maybe it was his number one thing he had going. Yeah. It seems like mostly he it really was fathering children and playing rugby. Yeah. <laughs> he can't really figure out what to do. It seems like. Yeah. Here's the thing that's hilarious to me in the lost boys. Yeah. There's a whole band, totally homoerotic band scene where they're all in the crowd watching this like huge muscle guy playing the sack. Yeah. So Schumacher in the span of four years, has two scenes in movies that are kind of out of place. Yes. Revolve around like long sax solos 
which makes me wonder if this was like a weird fetish of his. I don't know if there are other movies like in so eight million. How much of this is you know this time period better than I do because you remember it more clearly, but like was Clarence Clemens just that big? Were we all just like the sax is the thing? No, because Eddie and the Cruisers comes out two years before and that has a a crucial sax guy. <laughs> in that movie, that's basically based on Clarence Clemens. So maybe you're right. Maybe it is like a Clarence Clemens influence. I all I know is at no point in my life did a friend ever say to me, Hey, let's go to this bar tonight. They have a great sax player. Yes. Yeah. That's never happened. No, I mean I, I leave bars, I leave bars when trivia starts. The idea of walking into a bar and being like, some guy is playing bar rock, but he's gonna solo the entire time while these poor bastards on street stage are like, What love? It's like for 10 minutes. And then uh he has that one thing where he where he finishes sax solo and then he tries to engage the crowd and he's like, yeah. let's rock! And he starts <laughs> doing this clap thing. It's so bad. It, I, it brings me so much joy. And then his ex-wife, or his, I guess his strange wife, comes in with a date who is the most 80s, dumbass-looking dude. It's fucking Hollywood from Top Gun, man. He comes in with Whit Hugh. Is that who that is? Yeah! That's who that, that's the Joey Pants, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Unless I was it's there. his first role. They have a fight outside the bar. It's it's great. That is a great five minutes. I don't know why one love didn't make it. Uh, what's age the best? Not the sax player. Great opening credits. We mentioned the music we mentioned. The, the soundtrack, this is the first soundtrack ever written by David Foster. Yeah. Who went on to make a kajillion dollars and be uh, featured in Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. He also co-wrote the St. Elmo's Fire song with uh, John Parr. True or false? That was the number one song in America. True or false? Oh, true. It was fucking true. It was yeah. the number during yeah. a time with like Prince and Huey Lewis and Sidney Lauper and Bruce Springsteen. But that was also a time when like if a song was in a movie, it was like insanely popular. I think it's funny that the movie's called St. Elmo's Fire. They hang out in St. Elmo's Fire. Unironically, a song called St. Elmo's Fire made in motion. And Rob Lowe gives a speech about St. Elmo's Fire. But nobody ever could, and nobody's ever like, hey, man, this is weird, man. We go to St. Elmo's Fire to drink, and this song's called St. Elmo's Fire. It's just <laughs> not acknowledged. Uh, another what's age the best. Jay Moore's Andrew McCarthy impersonation, which was basically <laughs> basically ripped off from this movie and everything Andrew McCarthy does in this movie. And Jay Moore dined on that, I'm going to say, for 15 years. It still makes me laugh where I love her, man, with the bulge in the eyeballs, all that stuff. Uh, another would say the best great title. Cinema's Fire is a good title. And the yeah. ironic thing is Columbia Pictures hated it. Apparently they sent a 35 page memo listing all of their issues with pros title. Do they have any alts? Yeah. Two, two alternatives. Sparks. Hmm. Like taps or whatever. Yeah. This is crazy. The real world. Oh, that probably would have been pretty good. But St. Elmo's Fire is just like in indelible. It's great. I also like when they, you know, one of my favorite things is when they work the title into the dialogue in the actual movie. Right. It gives a whole St. almost fire speech. Like, what do I love more than that? That's another what's aged the best for me. Uh, I'm going to read this speech to you. This is him and Jules. We probably should have put this in most rewatchable scenes. I said Jules' rescue because I, I like all the stuff on the fire escape too and Alec hanging Kevin over the fire escape. Jules tries to commit suicide by air conditioning and yes. cold, cold weather. Billy says, uh, this isn't real. 
You know what it is? It's St. Elmo's fire. The electric flashes of light that appear in dark skies out of nowhere. The sailors would guide entire journeys by it. But the joke was on them. There was no fire. There wasn't even a St. Elmo. They made it up because they thought they needed it. Keep them going. But things got tough, just like you're making up all of this. We're all going through this. So there's a thing. I like movies when they're like, we're all going through this. It's like, what are you going through? Jules has a Coke problem. The other one, you're just trying to find a job. Like, you're not like fighting in Vietnam. I the, the the speech is the speech. I think Rob Lowe has been public about feeling like that's a pretty embarrass. It was like a pretty embarrassing monologue in retrospect. The other thing that's wrong with it is that Billy only has seven active brain cells, and most of it is dedicated to saxophone and siring children. So the idea that he could put together this analogy for jewels <laughs> that was rooted in nautical history. Right. It is such bullshit. The last time we saw them together, he was putting her car keys in his pants yes. and saying, come and get him. Yes. And now and now he's uh, Voltaire. Speaking <laughs> of Jules, another what's aged the best. Jules! Oh, God. Oh, one of my favorite 80s characters. Yes. Hands down. Yes. Just the best. I You could have spun off Jules into a TV show, a sequel. Um, Everybody either was Jules or knows a Jules. Like, especially out of college, like living a little fast with the credit cards, partying a little hard. You know, I got to say, nothing's better than knowing a Jules. <laughs> I knew a couple of Jules. Might have even dated a Jules. <laughs> Jules are great. Good memories. What's It's almost like in Rounders where it's like, if you can't spot the Jules in the first five seconds, it means you are the Jules. <laughs> My kryptonite basically for my entire 20s was I was always all in on jewels. Yeah. I was in the, if you're jewels, I'm in love. You probably still have like outstanding credit cards from like oh, yeah. banks that have since closed it, closed. Like you have a fleet, fleet bank credit card that's like maxed out because some girl went crazy at Pier One Furniture behind your back. She had the quote This is the 80s. I'll boff him for a few years, get his job when he gets his hands caught in the vault, become a legend, do a black mink ad, get caught in a sex scandal, retire a massive disgrace, write a huge bestseller, and become a fabulous host of my own talk show. Turns out that is a career plan. That is an actual, yeah. By the way, she probably, if you did the sequel, she probably would be like a co host on The View now, right? <laughs> or she would be Chris Jenner. She'd be. She would have a whole family of reality stars in the billion dollar empire. I love Jules. Any uh, other what's aged the best? Alec and Leslie's apartment. Um, I think all the apartments have aged the best. I, I love, I, I was just like, I also just marvel at like the Jay McInerney-ness of it where it's just like empty loft that they are refurbishing. The weird like full wall size poster of, or like wallpaper, but it is also- I of, thought like, that a was a painting. I thought it was a photo of a marathon. Yeah. I thought it was a photo she of- She painted it because she's allegedly a, an artist. She's an architect. Because well, she's she like- painting my, in my one draft. of the scenes. Yeah, I think she- I think, And also, like, I just think that in general, like, that just felt very, like, accurate for the time of, like, that. And I also just love that when they do that argument, when they break up about the Pretenders and uh, Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel records, it was- it's so perfect because like back then people really did have like just 20 records. And if you broke up, you were like, no, I'm, I'm going to have to go buy born in the USA again. If you take it. Yeah. 
that sucks. Like you, I'm not just going to like get, get it on Spotify, but like the dividing up of CDs and books that have kind of accumulated in each of your apartments was a real thing in breakups. It was almost like a fantasy draft. Yeah. Like you get the first pick, I get two and three, you get four and five and you just kind of break them up. I, uh, oh, the only other thing I said is age the best, which is going to be controversial is um, the way Billy Hicks wears ties. I think we should bring that back. I think it's, I think, I think, Humorous tie wearing is ready for a comeback. Tie around your head, tie over your shirt, kind of loosely just thrown off to the side. I'm with you. Okay. I, I think Billy's hair is aged the best and the worst. <laughs> the wet look is in. So I have my answer for what's aged the best is Jules, but I have a special spinoff care uh, category just for this, just for this episode. Because one of the things that's aged the best is the exchanges. We mentioned, uh, the three-year chairman, Georgetown Young, moving up Kerbo. There's other great exchanges. I'm going to give you a couple more. All this time, I was afraid you would find out that I wasn't fabulous. That's cool. All this time, I was afraid you would find out that I was irresponsible. You ever feel like you're not accomplishing anything at all? I think I'm in touch with that emotion. <laughs> we won't ever remember. Oh, we won't even remember this tomorrow. Kevin, it is tomorrow. I always thought we'd be friends forever. Yeah, well, forever got a lot shorter all of a sudden. Marriage is obsolete. Dinosaurs are obsolete. Marriage <laughs> is still around. <laughs> Haven't you heard of the sexual revolution? Who won, huh? Nobody. This movie has this pitter-patter. Yeah. That's just great. What's your favorite exchange of all those exchanges? Mine is still moving up, Kerbo. Uh, I, I think forever got shorter. That's also uh, was was taken and put in this um the song I really like by this band Brett Breed. Uh, like and it, like so some of these lines of dialogue actually became like kind of like pop culture reference points. I think there's another one about where Jules is like I never thought I'd feel so old at 22 or something like that that I really like. So yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Like the all the little exchanges are really good. Uh, what's age the worst? Mayor Winningham's close. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why they dressed her like she, well, she was, was pregnant. Yeah, but it, it. first of all, all right, if she's pregnant, do they have to dress her like she's a 1950s librarian? Wendy just seems like a really nice person who gets caught up with this group of people. It's inexplicable why she's dating Billy. And it's really weird that they're like, the big thing is that this woman's overweight. Because it's just it's just an odd plot point. Also inexplicable that he would like her or that he would like anybody. First of all, he has a wife. Yes. Second of all, she knows he has a wife. <laughs> every bar he goes to, he's trying to bang whoever. And right. then he's got this, this hot thing for this woman who dresses like a 1956 librarian who has no personality. It's completely inexplicable. I have no idea why this is in there. I think she's miscast. Everything about it doesn't work. Uh, speaking of not working, Andrew McCarthy God bless him, is really miscast in this movie. Now, he's also perfectly cast because he's the unintentional so, comedy is through the roof, but I just... So you don't buy him as like the cerebral bookish smartass or what? Because what, I, I like him in this movie. His smoking is horrific. You I, can tell he learned to smoke like the day before they started filming <laughs> the movie. Like he's doing the Tom Cruise smoking practically. The singing Aretha Franklin... The him trying to complain about everything, like he's the Hunter S. Thompson disciple, <laughs> he just hates everything. It's like I knew these people in college and in grad school. They they were not like this guy. 
You always get really edgy about English majors. I feel like this is Troy and Reality Bites all over again. That's my point. Yeah. This character is Troy and Reality Bites. And he and he's not Ethan Hawke. I can't hate. I definitely thought I was both of these guys. So I'm not going to get mad at him. Yeah, but isn't Ethan Hawke as Troy a much better version of this character? Well, the thing in Reality Bites is Troy is friends with a bunch of people that you would kind of expect Troy to be friends with. Whereas Kevin, it's, in, un, it's not really explained why Kevin is like friends with any of these guys or Kevin or they're friends with Kevin. Or like, why do you like him? What's what's likable about him? I can't think of one thing. So he hasn't slept with a woman in a couple of years because he's so in love with Leslie that he just can't bring himself to do it. Right? Right. Yeah, but none of them have figured out that he's in love with Leslie. Like every time he's around her, he's like a fucking puppy dog. No red flags. I uh, So and do you also get the impression that Alec is constantly cheating on Leslie or only just recently? Oh, I think it was constant. Okay. So Kevin is just like sitting on that one. So I'm, I'm going to step on a uh, recasting couch, which I was going to do later. I'm going to do it now. I think Downey Jr., who was up for one of these roles or a bunch of them. I think if he's Kevin, it's a better movie. I like Andrew McCarthy in this. That's it. This is interesting. I didn't expect this. I, I like Andrew people- McCarthy. I don't, I think him as Kevin is just, it's just a miscast. There are a couple of plot points in this movie that are so egregious that like Kevin doesn't really register for me. Um, like I just I just think for me, like what age like the Dale Kerbo thing has just aged so much more worse than anything that happens with Kevin. Okay. Let's do it. So Kirby's a stalker. Yeah. Um straight up. I think even 15 years later, he's arrested probably two incidents before he even gets to the ski house. It gets weirder every year. It was pretty weird even when the movie came out and yeah. it's gotten weirder since he, when he shows up to the black tie event and covered in coming out of the rain cut in just like, it looks like Buffalo Bill. Yeah. And and she's like, Hey, let me bring you back to my apartment. And then he somehow storms out. He finally go back to her apartment. He storms out. He's just a lunatic. He sniffs the pillow. The roommate sees like he's a maniac. And then uh, finally he throws her a whole party leaves the party to drive three hours in his friend's car to go to a ski house after trying to break through uh, the phone line for four hours. And, uh, and it's just, just a lunatic. He's a maniac. He's a maniac and also doesn't have any other plot. So it's like, all we know about him is that he's like in law school, tries to get Rob Lowe out of that first DUI charge, then becomes a maniac, switches jobs five times. And at the end just goes back to law school. Right. Right. There's a great scene though when after they bail in the whole the first rewatchable scene we mentioned, after they bail Rob Lowe out and the boss is like, Hey, where were you? You gotta tell me when you leave work. And Estevez just immediately takes somebody's order, like two minutes later, like nothing happens. <laughs> Doesn't ask whose table is too. The best part is like when they do the, at the Billy Hicks and the new breed night, he takes Felicia and her date's order. He's just like, I'm just I'm just working here. Can I get you a daiquiri? Um the the stock we don't need to belabor the stocking, but it's it's just incredibly dumb. Dale's understanding boyfriend at the ski house is also what's aged the worst to me. Like that guy's <laughs> like, what the fuck is going? Are you dating this guy? No, I'm not dating him. He's just been stalking me for a few weeks. Yeah, well, just- what, how about I beat the shit out of him? Like, why is this guy here? The guy's like, hey man, can I get you a blanket? Hey, got your car started. No, no boyfriend has ever been this cool. Ridiculous. Uh, last one for what's aged the worst. You mentioned 
the apartments in the what's age the best. It's also the what's age the worst because yeah. these people are 22. Uh, apparently, Schumacher said, I felt that a lot of youth movies were given a cheap production because what did it matter? They were just youth movies. And I thought, why not give young people movie stars with great clothes and great sets and great cars? Glamour is very much a concept of mine. Yeah. I, it's a what's age the worst and it's a what's age the best. Like a lot with this movie. It's the trapped. pendulum swings, right? Like we want very realistic depictions. We want uh, hyper kind of fantasized depictions. Well, what's age the worst is uh, Kirby's entire plot. Kirby's. I, I would also say I don't really understand why Jules is the fulcrum of the drama at the end of the movie, but we spend way more time with Wendy's family. Like the amount of time we spend with like Martin Balsam and like what Wendy's doing and whether or not Wendy's car means that she also has to do this. It's just like, why are we spending so much time on this? The 10 episode Netflix version of this movie, you're basically fast forwarding the Wendy episode. Yeah. They're like, oh, this is the Wendy episode. I'm just going to fast forward the episode. Is there another Jules episode? <laughs> Jules, can Jules do cocaine with some Saudi Arabians? Uh, all right. Casting what ifs. They interviewed hundreds of people. Anthony Edwards and Leah Thompson apparently came close. Schumacher had to push hard for the three breakfast club people. Amelia wanted to play Billy. That yeah. would have been a disaster. Had to settle for Kirby. See Thomas Howe audition for Kirby. Didn't get it. He was too young. Ironically, Rob Lowe was only 20 when he was cast as, uh, as, as Billy. Billy. Robert Downey Jr. considered for the role of Billy, but they settled on Rob Lowe after three auditions. I love Rob Lowe as Billy. Robert Downey as Billy is pretty good. That's like a classic real life. It's video. funny how many of these people could have played multiple roles in this movie. I still think Robert Downey as, uh, as Kevin is the sweet spot. It's also interesting that Emilio plays kind of like, a, I mean, I, I like his character in Breakfast Club. It's, it's well done. Then does Kerbo, who's essentially the guy from Breakfast Club like five years later. Yeah. And then winds up probably having one of the better careers out of this whole group, just in terms of, of being in Young Guns and that being a huge hit and making his own movies and stake out. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's interesting that he had the le less flashy stuff to do, but winds up like kind of coming out on the other end. Charlie Sheen was probably a tiny bit too young, but easily could have. He also apparently didn't show up to his, uh, he didn't show up to his audition. He could have played Alec. Yeah. Yeah. He basically does in Wall Street. You mentioned Demi Moore had to go to rehab before shooting. She got cast because uh, Schumacher was in a bungalow on the Columbia Pictures lot with John Hughes and Cameron Crowe in the same office building. And Demi Moore was auditioning for a John Hughes movie. Something bad happened and she stormed out. And Schumacher saw her walking out storming off and was like who's that and they chased her down they were like are you a model she's like no i'm on general hospital uh full disclosure i, I was still watching general hospital when Demi Moore was on oh yeah yeah she was great huge thumbs up um anyway when she went to rehab they talked about taking jenny wright who played rob lowe's mm -hmm. wife moving her into the role of jules but then Demi Moore got her shit together. There's also some Madonna stuff. I don't know what to believe, but Madonna. They did a lot of generals where they did Laura Branigan and Madonna, and Madonna had been talked about coming in if Demi hadn't gotten clean. I think that they had thought about like trying to bring Madonna in to play Jules or be somebody in the movie. It, it does sound like essentially we've done a couple of these mid 80s ensemble movies. 
and it literally sounds like there were about 40 actors and they all went up for the same eight parts in these movies. So any one of the casting what ifs, they're always just like, here's the 10 people who went for this movie and here's the one they chose. Madonna as Jules. Does that do anything for you? I'm not mad at it. It's a good runner up. I still, I think to me more at that point in her career was perfect. But Madonna, that would have been, that would have been, the only thing is I'd, I don't know if Madonna could have pulled off the Jeep scene with Billy because that, that might be some of the best acting to me more has ever done. And I don't know if Madonna could have pulled that off. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a couple of, uh, there was rumors that um, Linda Hamilton was up for one of the roles, which I thought was pretty cool. I, I was, I was always wondering like who she would have played. I guess she might've played Jules. She could have played the Ali Shady part. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Best that guy, okay, the Joey Pants Award. Couple this is, nominees. No, this, this, this is a field of one. It is definitely Whit Hubley. <laughs> I have two more nominees. Okay. All right, so I have the hooker because I know we've seen her somewhere Anna Maria Westford. Yeah, she was in The Shield. She was in Friday. She's a, she's, she's a legend, yeah. Matthew Lawrence, who played Ron the Gay Guy. Oh, yeah. Same year, Eddie and the Cruisers. He plays Sal Amato. Huge role in Eddie Cruisers. Eventually settles on 90210 as David Silver's dad. Yeah. <laughs> and has a nice little run as uh, Mel Silver. <laughs> he keeps coming back. And I think he's now like a poker guy. Does Mel Silver, is he, does he, who dies in a boat explosion on 90210? No, that's that's Dylan's dad. Okay, my bad. Jack McKay. Yeah. Um, they, the Ron, the gay guy, I, I don't know why they did this, but they made him the most, maybe this is a mid-80s thing. They made him the most stereotypical gay guy ever. The first time we meet him, Demi Moore is trying to set up Kevin with her. He's game. got like a strawberry daiquiri in his hand. Yeah. Fucking crazy drink in the middle yeah. of the day. Every time we see him, it's I, it's kind of hard to believe nobody. We Can you imagine living next to Jules? Oh my God. The, like the things that were happening at like 3.30 in the morning there where it was just like... <laughs> Her asking if she could borrow a vacuum at 3.45 a.m. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you're going with Hubley. Oh, absolutely, man. Okay. The Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award for uh, best overacting. Judd Nelson's No Springsteen is leaving this house scene. We could almost transfer the award to him. I think I think you could you could also make the argument for when Billy sits down with Felicia after he goes back to college for the day and he's just like, you'll see. I'm going to make a go of, you know, like... Don't, don't you quit on me! Yeah, don't you quit on me. He said he'd take care of me and Melody. Don't you give up on me. We could probably still get an annulment. No! Yeah, that, and I, I also had uh, <laughs> a couple of Emilio Estevez moments with the with the, uh, Calling the roommates, but I think Judd Nelson, no Springsteen leaving this house. That's it. Dan Waiters award. Interesting. So we have, uh, we have our guy, uh, our guy from Top Gun. I, I have Anna Maria Horsford for this. I have, I have, I have her, her being like, uh, lots of people come to me for love and it's a secret. She's great. Uh, Wendy's mom. Cancer. <laughs> the, uh, fat naked guy in the hospital when they go to get Billy in the hospital. Yeah. Silent, but deadly there. Just yeah. a complete fat naked guy. We just see his back. And then I, I got to say, I think Andy McDowell is eligible. She's in like four or five scenes. She looks great. Uh, you could totally see why he'd be in love with her. And it went on to launch her career. So I, I'm not against her being a nominee, but I'm with you. I think uh, I think it's the hooker. 
probably a 14 or a 15 seed here for this award is uh, Tommy Hodges, Senator Bancroft's guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like fucking smoking a pipe in the back of St. Elmo's fire. Yeah. Uh, all right. Recasting couch. Here's what I have for to recast the Mayor Winningham part. I wanted somebody who is era specific who would be a little bit better looking. Mm-hmm. Just, just put it on the table. Um, but also maybe could play, you know, whatever. Daphne Zuniga. Mm-hmm. Coming up, sure thing. Uh, we get a br- we get another brunette in there because Demi Moore's got lighter hair, and maybe she could play the. I'm a little. My parents are a little overbearing, but I still have a connection with Rob Lowe. I like that. That was my choice. Okay. What about Justine Bateman? I think she's too famous. In 1985, that's still one of the four biggest shows. I think Recasting she kind of overpowers. I had two. Yeah. For Leslie? Yeah. Helen Slater? Oh. Just a kind of, kind of sh- like real 80s heads no. Is all fair is fair. Uh, <laughs> when are we doing The Legend of Billie Jean? You tell me. You named it. That's a one for us. It's one text from you and we're doing it. <laughs> it's going to be like fair. a time. Uh, Helen Slater as Leslie and uh, Linda Fiorentino as Jules. Ooh. Yeah. That's pretty good. Coming yeah. off Vision Quest. Yeah. I do, Legend of Billie Jean foreshadows the entire internet. Bill, don't, don't, don't waste the take. Don't waste the take. Pump up the volume creates podcasting. Legend of Billie Jean creates the internet. Those are my takes. <laughs> Half past internet research. The street that the St. Elmo's bar is on is on the universal back lot. Two or three buildings to the left is the Hill Valley clock tower from Back to the Future. Oh. So that, so that was cool. happening. It was based on the Tombs uh, popular watering hall with Georgetown students, which I have been to. You have? A couple times, yeah. Does it look like a Friday's? It was the same. It, when I was going there, um, Joe House moved there after college. So we started going there to visit him at least once a year, 90, 91, 92 range. It was like, let's go to the, let's go to the bar that they made St. Omar's on. Hmm. And that was like kind of the hook for but it. Did it so have like, like a lot of tchotchkes like that? Like the way. Very similar. Okay. The cast hung out. We mentioned that. Um, it seemed like there was a lot of partying with the five, like a lot. <laughs> Jeez, really? Like a lot. And uh, Estevez and Demi Moore got engaged. Yeah. And they made Wisdom together, which he directed, and then it bombed, and she broke up with him. The uh, Georgetown would not permit filming, so they had to use University of Maryland. But there's a great story from uh, the book I mentioned by Susanna Gore, which is a really fun, I recommend it on iBooks, where Schumacher was told by a priest that they couldn't shoot the film there. So according to the book, he asked the priest, excuse me, Father, because they'd filmed The Exorcist there. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, Father, but isn't this the institution where a film was made where a prepubescent child masturbates with a crucifix and says, your mother sucks cocks in hell? Taken aback, but without missing a beat, the priest responded, yes, Mr. Schumacher, but in The Exorcist, God wins over the devil, which does not seem to be the case in your movie. Did you really get the, was that your takeaway from The Exorcist? <laughs> I, that, this was Joel Schumacher's take. That was Double the things. takeaway. A- we got to do exorcist a plus anecdote right there. Yeah, That is unbelievable. Yeah. Um, 
so Roblo, he had Ima- imagine time. thinking that, that St. Elmo's fire is more evil than the exorcist. I love it. I support the take. Uh, Lowe had courtside tickets to the Lakers and a new Porsche and Demi Moore lived at the then new truck tower. Yeah. Two things I found. Uh, the shower door coming off in the sheedy McCarthy sex scene was an accident. The reaction was genuine. And then, uh, apparently she was really rattled by the, uh, by doing a, doing a pseudo sex scene. McCarthy said, this is all in the Susanna Gore book. Uh, he Schumacher was mad. It wasn't passionate enough. He screamed out, "You're fucking action!" McCarthy, <laughs> yeah. McCarthy remembers. Allie burst into tears, and I just stood up naked and said, "What the fuck is the matter with you?" And Joel said, "Oh, I'm sorry." Says McCarthy. I mean, I love Joel, but it was not the appropriate thing to say. Would probably be a bigger deal in 2020. Yeah. Rob Lowe did learn how to play sax for the movie, in case you were wondering. Although there are moments in the Billy Hicks thing where you can tell. He is not playing saxophone. And then McCarthy said, quote, as close as many of the members of the gang were. Um, oh, no, this is in the book. It says as close as many members of the gang were. one young St. Elmo's cast member felt out of sync socially from the others. Quote, Andrew McCarthy. I always felt sort of apart. I never felt any kind of great camaraderie. I think I went out once or twice with the guys in L.A. Andrew McCarthy, bad hang. What was the Kevin... The Kevin Clark game, great hang, tough hang. Wait, but you're are, like, let's let's take a step back. Would you now rather hang out with Andrew McCarthy or Judd Nelson? Oh, Judd Nelson. Getting new Jack really? stories. Yeah, <laughs> stories in his different movies. I think Danny Jr. is a, is a, is a win in that role. Apex Mountain. Rob Lowe. I think it's about last night, the following year. I'll, I'll go. I'll go this. Okay. Judd Nelson. I say yes. Coming off Breakfast Club, Benny's does this. You're thinking he's an a Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the peak went down, but yes. Andrew McCarthy, I'm going to say Weekend at Bernie's. Or or Mannequin, yeah. Demi Moore, no way. Which no, it does no raise an way. interesting question of what was her apex. Definitely I wasn't mean, a few good men as Joe Galloway. Was it G.I. Jean? Did that movie make money? But I think it was like when she was like, she could star in an action movie. What about her making striptease and breaking the bank for what somebody that bombed that, that, that movie. Yeah, I guess it would probably, I mean, I thought but that her movie signing bombed. the striptease, but her signing the striptease contract, probably her apex. Okay. Sets a new record for female actresses. Ali Sheedy, I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I guess so. Emilio Estevez, no. no probably no. Young, young Guns or Stake Out, one of those. Young Guns. John Parr, yes. All right, this is super car dorky. I only I only let this side out a couple times in the rewatchables, but the 1982 Jeep CJ7, I'm going to say yes, Apex Mountain. What an incredible I, car that was. So that's the one that they go driving around Georgetown and pick everybody up. And when it's, it's seven people and all that stuff. All right, this is a big one. Georgetown, Apex Mountain, because you have this movie and you have Patrick Ewing winning the title this year. This was in my unanswerable questions. Do you think... Patrick Ewing likes this movie. No. Okay. I don't. I, Do you I think, think John I, Thompson has seen this movie? No way. No. Do you think they could have thrown in like just a reference? Just a reference. Like if you went to Georgetown in '85, you would be obsessed with Georgetown basketball. You're mentioning like Reggie Williams, 
David Wingate, right? Like it's in, yeah. By the way, I should mention when we talked about Perfect Storm, I was mad there wasn't a Red Sox game. Apparently, there's a sneaky moment where they say it's October when they film Perfect Storm. Got an email from a friend of mine about it. So they should have been showing Celtic games in the bar. Okay. Perfect Storm. In this case, they absolutely, somebody, Kirby, I think Kirby was our guy for this. He should have had like the Ewing poster or something, right? Absolutely. Or the Ewing or the Ewing jersey. Do you think, or do you think Andrew, Kevin was like, no, we need more room for my Woody Allen poster. Kevin was a douche. I hated people like Kevin. My my finals for movie characters I wouldn't want to hang out with. It's like Kevin and Troy from Reality Bites. <laughs> my one seeds. I just hated people like that. Uh, all right, picking nets. How do you lose all your possessions because of a cocaine problem? Like, do cocaine dealers like I'm going to take that bureau? No, she's she's overextended on her credit cards, man. Cocaine guys, cocaine dealers are not like, hey, we're repossessing your couch. But she had furniture, and by the end of it, there's. But no she fur- bought it all on credit, and then because she was because remember Kevin's Somebody like, how are you? It? Yeah, not not the cocaine dealers though. The bank did. They repoed every piece of furniture she bought. Yes. Have you ever heard of this happening ever? That he yeah, people get their shit repossessed when they don't pay off their bills. Every yeah. single thing. They're like, hey, that $10 poster, we're taking that. I think, first of all, I think it was more that that poster of Billy Idol looked like an art installation. And second of all, I think that once you once you engage in that contract, like you, you really have any claim to anything. I don't agree with that, but I'm just saying, I think she was like probably like $80,000 in credit card debt. If that poster... A friend of yours in LA bought that poster in an auction. They they just gave it to you, and you brought that home for your wife. And you're like, "We're putting this up in the living room." What's her reaction? The Billy Idol poster. I think I think I, you know I I think she would she would go with me on on my art. You know I think I think I think I could get away with it. I think I could get away with it. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was a really cool poster. I really liked <laughs> it. I didn't like it as much as the other one of the runners. Yeah, the the runners. I could talk. My wife would do like right now, but the Billy Idol thing, I think I would have to have an explanation for. If I could have anything from this movie, I would have the Jeep. Uh, more picking nits. We mentioned Billy and Wendy, what the fuck was happening there. I have a sequencing thing on the night of Kirby's party at Kim's house. Sure, sure. Okay. So all of these things happen the same night. Kirby leaves and drives three and a half hours to a ski house. Billy... And Jules take off and he drive, but all the bars are closed. Ali Sheedy and Kevin leave the party because of the huge fight. Mm-hmm. Go back to his house, yes. have a huge drunk life talk and have sex and break the shower door. And then Judd Nelson shows up. I don't know what time of night that was. Judd Nelson shows up in the morning, I think. I think Judd Nelson's been out all night and comes over at like eight in the morning, seven in the morning. But you're right. There's a couple of this. The same thing happens at the beginning of the movie where Billy gets a DUI, gets bailed out of prison, and they get to St. Elmo's fire that night. So it must have been day drinking. While it's still peaking. Yeah, but like, you can you bail somebody out of prison like in 40 minutes like that? So Kirby has... The party at Kim's house. I'm thinking it starts like 8 30, 9 o'clock. Yeah. Right? That's a nighttime party. Sure. It's dress up. Sure. It's going at least three, four, five hours. Right. Everybody's on cocaine. You know, it's, there's no slowing down. People are flying. I mean, you could argue it starts at 10 o'clock. And then I, the, 
it's the longest night. It's one of the longest nights in movie history. It's <laughs> it's a fourteen hour night somehow. Kirby's driving three and a half hours, and where was he driving? I think the Poconos. Had? I can't tell though. I think the Poconos. Best quote. There are several quintessential moments in a man's life. Losing his virginity, getting married, becoming a father, and having the right girl smile at you. I'm not going to live to another year of finding you. You agree with this? In my, in my own personal life? No, do you agree with that quote? Uh, no, I think that there are some other things that happen. Like winning a Super Bowl? <laughs> beating, beating Tom Brady for your only Super Bowl? That's right. Uh, another best quote. Never trust a woman who says she isn't angry. It ain't a party till something gets broken. You break my heart. Then again, you break everyone's heart. That's the iconic quote. And if you go into my page two archives from way back, 2001, I wrote a whole piece about Terry Glenn built around the character, <laughs> built around the character of Billy Hicks. That's like a fucking, that's like a bill, like automated column machine. <laughs> it was. I think I was, I think I was a robot in 2001. It, it was about how some athletes are destined to break your heart. And I used the analogy of Billy Hicks in this movie, like yeah. Billy Hicks is just destined to break somebody's heart. Um, and how Terry Glenn, and it was like the seven stages of Billy Hicks and how he hit them with Terry Glenn. It's insane. I don't, I was smoking a lot of pot back then. I have no defense. <laughs> Wait, I have one more quote. I liked, I enjoy Kevin saying, I enjoy being afraid of Russia. It's a harmless fear, but it makes America feel better. Russia gets an inflated sense of national worth from our paranoia. How's that? <laughs> also a take that's lasted throughout the decades yeah i ne- I never wanted any part of this guy could this be remade as a 10 episode netflix show please oh absolutely why not what are you guys doing come on although nothing will happen because I don't, I don't think i don't think people graduating college these days are are as raucous as the people in this movie i don't know i think that i think that you could make it pretty and Topher grace tried to make this as a tv show in 2009 or something like that the idea's been sitting there for 20 years, and I yeah. don't know why it hasn't happened. It's super easy. I, I think you do a Cobra Kai style, like how they did Karate Kid. You modernize it. Maybe you have Jules's son is at Georgetown. You figure out a way to weave in. What if you flip it? It's it's just like, it's all the Dale Bieberman story. Yeah, I think I'm out on that one. She, she, she married that guy. That guy was a great guy. Dale Bieberman locked that dude down. Probably unanswerable questions. Kevin's writing career? I just So let's go let's go through these people one by one and just say like what happened to them. All right, Kevin's writing career, we see the column he wrote. He's like, I got on the front page with the meaning of life. The first paragraph's about Pop-Tarts. We, <laughs> we know nothing else. I, so what kind of writer was he? Was he, do you think he went to like Russia with Matt Taibbi to? No, I was trying to think. It's like, so do you think that he winds up being, having like a kind of Mitch Album Bloom career where like he does a lot of like, day-to-day stuff but then writes these almost like self-help books like he has a tuesday in the park with jewels kind of thing you don't think he's at spin magazine late 80s just ripping on rem's new album (laughs) (laughs) he's like you guys never listened to me about billy hicks and the new great breed (laughs) these guys were great I don't think his writing career is successful. He's too much of a loser. Alec clearly becomes a senator and then probably has some sort of scandal. Mm-hmm. Has to resign. I don't know what happens to Ali Sheedy. Billy's probably, dead. Billy's dead, for sure. Billy's dead. Yeah. Jules, I think she called what was going to happen. I think she's hosting. Absolutely a called her own shot. Yeah. Kerbo, um, probably like an OJ Simpson kind of an ending for him. GM of the Nationals. 
<laughs> Until he has to leave for some sort of domestic violence thing. Um, who else is in this movie? Wendy, I don't care. I don't want to think about Wendy ever again. What about Whit Hubley? Whit Hubley, I think he... He joins the Navy and becomes a pilot. <laughs> Can you kill yourself by freezing to death in a Washington, D.C. apartment? I think that there is a lot of debate about this scene. No. In the 2020 version of this movie, which I think it should be a TV show, is Kevin gay? Is that one of the twists? You have Kevin gay, right? But that's the only thing that's really like, I think that the love triangle is the thing that really like survives in this movie. That's the, the most interesting thing to me. And I think they don't do enough of a job to really play up Kevin and Alec's relationship. I mean, Jules says Kevin's like in love with Alec and like everybody's in love with Alec. But I kind of have a hard time understanding why Kevin wouldn't have pulled Alec's card earlier if he was so in love with Leslie. Like, why is he, is he waiting because they were about to get... So you don't, you don't think Kevin would be gay? No, because I think that would take away the entire dr- dramatic hinge of the, the story is whether or not Leslie is going to choose Kevin or Alec. Eh, do we need that? I do, yeah. It's just a fucking movie about jerks otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I love that love triangle. Yeah. Who won the movie? Tough one. <sighs> the backing band, the new breed. <laughs> the new breed is not eligible. Who won the movie? The city of New York City, because they're going to get those prime Billy Hicks years. Do you think Billy, like the idea that Billy thinks he's going to clean up his act in New York City in the mid 80s is fucking hilarious? Oh my God. He's like, hmm, I really got to chill out. You know, I, I got. I think what I'll do is go to New York City with a pack of Newports and a saxophone in 1985. Well, you think they ripped that off for Beautiful Girls? Because it was the same kind of thing, right? Like, man, don't give up the piano, man. You're great. You're yeah. great at this. And it's like, well, what's going to happen? You're going to be I think everybody's got a friend who hangs on to the to, to music for a long time. Yeah. But well, yeah. I don't even as talented as Billy. Uh, who won the movie? <sighs> I think there's two finalists. I really enjoy Judd Nelson. I think every scene he's enjoyable in this movie, but I think it's Rob Lowe or Demi Moore. I think it's Demi Moore. I think it's Demi Moore. It's like a star-making performance. She's really good in it. Has all of like the... She, she like feels like a real person. Feels like a real character. Have we ever had a tie before? Or is that a cop-out? No, we've tied before. We've disagreed. So I'm going to go... Do you want to say Demi Moore and Rob Lowe? I think they're co-winners and then it pays off with about last night, which is a really good movie. And she's great in that. I, I think that's the best acting she's ever done in that movie. But I think watching this movie all these years later, those are the two that jump out. And Rob yeah. Lowe, who we're about to hear from, um, you know, this was the best role he had. It's amazing. He's 20. Usually they shoot over when they're yeah, he's like, like, he's, about 22 years. Usually the person's like 35. He's the exact age, right? Yeah. Or pretty much. Or he's younger. Uh, all right, Chris Ryan, don't let her go, man. <laughs> Forever got shorter, Bill. Don't let her go. I'll I'll see you for uh for Legend of Billie Jean six hour podcast. Should we do Legend of Billie Jean and pump up the volume together? We're doing pump up the volume this summer. I can't wait. It created podcasting. Our our next movie we're doing two this week. We're going to be doing Swingers on Wednesday night, which mm-hmm. is available on HBO Max. If you have HBO Max, you can. Watch it ahead of time and join us. Looking forward to that. When we did a big oral history on Grantland way back when. And uh, look forward to mining that. Chris Ryan, I'll see you in a couple of days. Thanks, Bill. 35th anniversary this month. Say no most fire. Oh, boy. 35 years ago, this week, 
And with the passing of the great Joel Schumacher, our director. Two there days you ago, go. Um, Joel was an amazing man, an amazing director, and really, really, you know, look, Coppola gave me a huge break. But Joel Schumacher was, w- gave me the most iconic part I played in the 80s. And for sure, that's Billy and St. Elmo's Fire. And, you know, they wanted me to play. So that script was around. It, was, it wasn't The Outsiders, but it was close in that the script was out there and every young actor wanted to be in it. It had this kind of buzz and everybody was auditioning and trying to do it. But I'd already done movies. And, you know, I wasn't auditioning and didn't have to do any of that stuff. And um, all the, But everybody else in the movie was auditioning and doing it and getting the movie. And because they, you know, it wasn't being like offered to me like the other ones were, I didn't even know about it. Mm. And but I'd heard about it, and then finally somebody was like, "You should read this," and I read it, and I was like, "Oh, this part of Billy's really good." And my agent was like, "Well, I'll talk to the studio," and they talked to the studio, and the studio wanted me to play the Judd Nelson part, and did not want me to play Billy, in spite of the fact that I was at that moment kind of an it guy. They were like not having it. They were like not interested. Rob Lowe, Billy Hicks, no, and so. I had to go to Joel Schumacher and convince him that I could be a bad boy. So I got fucked up on beer. I brought a six pack into the meeting. And uh, by the time the meeting was over, I had the part. And um, it was one of my favorite movies I've ever done. You know, I remember when the trailer was coming out for it, it had that great music that they would eventually use for uh nba finals and stuff like that they'd use like lakers celtics and you would hear brent musburger being like yep the lakers thought after game three that and you would just hear the saint almost fire music it had you know the washington dc mid-80s georgetown yeah the the little foliage in october and it was Mm -hmm. just and it was all these actors that at that point we knew all of them except for mary winningham but the other six and a lot of them had been in movies together and different movies. And it was a movie that just made sense. And it, and also like, you know, people right out of college, I hadn't really seen that movie for a few years. You know, it was a movie that for some reason people weren't making. What happens after you graduate? What do you do? Yeah, it was It truly looking back on it now, it seems obvious, but it wasn't at the time. Nobody had done that movie. It's like the you know, you've, you've had this great moment in your life and now you're like, okay, now what the fuck? And are we still friends and will we be friends? And, and, and what were our friendships predicated on? And, and look, St. Elmo's Fire has always had a little bit of a, um, like people make fun of it. There's a little bit of a hate watching thing because it's so eighties and it's a lot of it's really, really dated and, and, and that's all true, but underneath it, it's really about stuff that, um, has, has stood the test of time in spite of the fact that me and hair moose might not have stood the test of time. Your hair, that you have an incredible trumpet scene in there or sa- oh, I'm sorry, sax scene. Sax. I mean, what, <laughs> the, you, you got to love it. Like that's how you know it's eighties is there's a saxophone <laughs> solo scene. There's a band built around the saxophone player. It's like, it's a, just wait till you hear his solos. You guys are going to go nuts. <laughs> this guy's a star in waiting. It's just, yeah, it was, God, I was trying to do my, my version of Clarence Clemens from the E street band. I was like, I I ripped off every one of his moves, even how he, he strapped the the horn around his back, like a guitar strap instead of putting it in front of him. And I just completely ripped that from the big man. 
Well, the things I loved about that movie that just weren't, and it's a little like the big show was like this too, which I think is a movie that's now thought of all these years later, probably a little more respectfully, but big show, same thing. Like, Hey, we, we, we all meant really something important to each other for these four years. And now it's 10, 15 years later. And it's like, I barely know you guys anymore, but I still have this connection. And it and was the same thing with Sin Almost Fire, where it's like, yeah, we were in college, but now we're all going different ways. But we still have this connection. We still have this bond. Well, and that's funny because when people ask me about the Brat Pack or the cast of the Outsiders, that's the answer. I say, if you went to college with someone, if you if you were in a sorority or a fraternity, and you did all those things and and went through all of that stuff, the, the the Brat Pack and those people, and from those movies, they're my fraternity. Right. My fr- when I see when I run into Tom Cruise, he's my fraternity brother. It's what it is. It's like I don't really know what he's doing now, particularly, and he doesn't maybe know what I'm doing. It doesn't make one fucking bit of difference. We're frater- we're we were in the same frat. Well, that was the year the Brat the New York Magazine wrote the Brat Pack piece, mm-hmm. right? That's right, and that that's was on the, the cover. That's, the coin- that's it. And it seems like some people have complicated feelings about that. I always liked the Brat Pack, but I, I know there was a stigma to it that, I don't know, do you think ultimately it was it a good thing, a bad thing, or both? Ultimately, it was a good thing, 100%. I think that it didn't engender us to any positive criticisms. I don't think that movie would have ever, or that that genre would have ever been a critic's darling type of thing to begin with. But that But that piece killed us with, polite society in the media mm. and and there were um there were certain members of the of the brat pack who were way 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 more sensitive to that to that kind of stuff and so it really was a they, they didn't love it and hate it in fact hated it there's a couple of folks who won't even participate to this day in conversations about 30 year anniversaries of any of it and um i i take a different view um I, I didn't love it when it came out because, you know, it made us kind of look like unserious party animal uh, guys, which we certainly had that side, but we were, no one was more serious about their acting and their careers than we were. Yeah. But um, looking back on it now, I, I, well, even then, the, like you, you were an audience member. You didn't, you never got the dog whistle underneath it that you're supposed to not like these people. You're like, whoa, Brat Pack, cool. And I think that's what most people, felt they're like they didn't they didn't realize that it was a a winking kind of pejorative that the fancy new york you know beret wearing critic bestowed upon us i think regular people just thought fucking cool i wish i was in the brat pack that's how i felt as a teenager to me it just seemed like jealousy if people were picking apart because i was just like i like all the movies these people are making so i don't know i don't know why we're bitching about them what uh what from a party standpoint? So you're coming into real prominence here, and this is the height of the cocaine era, the party era, the whole thing. It's in LA. Oh, yeah, I mean, nobody knows. Nobody knows cocaine is really bad yet, although we have an idea. Belushi dies in '82. Thank you. This is what I. This is what I keep telling everybody is like. It's hard to imagine today that there was a moment in time where not only was cocaine not bad for you. Like it helped your thinking. Right. It was good for you. It was good for concentration in your brain and wasn't addicting. I mean, it's not heroin for God's sakes. And 
it was what successful people did. Yeah. That it was honestly like today's wine. Look, I've been sober now 30 years. So I, and I was never a wine guy, so I don't really know. But what I observe today is this, the sort of wine culture is what cocaine was. It's mm. like in that we're all very refined and very successful. We're going to talk about our cocaine now. And, um, I assume, okay, it's from a dentist, actually. It's a, it's pure Boluvian Bolu- ship. Like, it's the same rigmarole you hear at a restaurant. It's like, oh, this is a, an oaky uh, uh, Napa Valley. That's what it was. Nobody thought it was bad. We learned. Right. <laughs> we well, learned. I think, I think the Len Bias thing in sports was the turning point oh. for that. That was June 86. But I remember, I remember where I was. I was at the, walking up to the... <clears throat> to the lunch truck on a movie called uh, Square Dance. And, you know, no one was a bigger Laker super fan. It was me and Jack Nicholson. We were the two. Yeah. And and I and somebody told me that he had he had passed away. And I thought, oh my God. And that that was sort of the beginning of it. Yeah. And I think you look back now and you think I've talked about this before in the podcast, but movies, TV, music, sports. And comedy. So you take those five things and you think of cocaine from 77 to 86 and everybody. And if you're successful, it's, you're doing it the same way. Like we drink coffee now, you know, yep. and it's like, yeah, I'm a, I have coffee in the morning. It's, it's not bad for me. It's fine. They, dude, they it's manageable. Sold it. They sold it on every movie set right. I was ever on ever. You think about that today. Can you imagine you're working for Amblin Entertainment. You're on Jurassic World. Who's selling the blow? Oh, it's it's uh, a camera department's doing it. Oh, okay, great, thanks. Crazy, but also well, you that, have to understand. Like, I also the people things are so different. When we were doing Outsiders, Tommy Howell's, I think, fourteen. Yeah, and I was seventeen, and the legal drinking age in most states was twenty-one. It might have been eighteen in Tulsa. But either way, Tommy's 14. We would get in the van after work every day and they would give us a case of beer. Just, Crazy. Just, just, different, just different time. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating to look back on it. Obviously, claim some victims. One other thing with St. Almost Fire, you know, when you talk about the 80s, how it's it's honestly one of the most 80s movies. If you're just like For sure. pick pick five movies from the 80s. And just and just use them as a way to explain the eighties to somebody who didn't get it. I would probably they would definitely be one of the five. There's like that crazy Emilio Estevez where he basically stalks Andy McDowell's character the whole movie, follows her three hours to the ski lodge, and then it's like it's cool. Oh, all right. It's it, that would be. I think if somebody made that movie and that was a key point of the movie now, people would be like, "What the hell is going on? This guy. Well, they get, this guy needs they get to be, res- like he needs help." They get a restraining order immediately. After the first scene, and there'd be no story. Yeah. 